40 through 1157, we're going to look at the seventh and final sign miracle that John, really Jesus' best friend, purposely recorded in his gospel to emphasize who Jesus is and was and the fact that because he's the Savior, we can be saved. We need salvation because we're all going to die and we're all sinners. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And all of us know that, and we rest in that. We're going to look at what really, uh, in many ways, is the climactic miracle in the ministry of Jesus, short of his own resurrection from the dead. But let's start here. Every human being who's blessed to come to full self-consciousness wonders, what's going to happen to me? Not if, but when I die. Now, I do believe that as we enter the beginning of the end times, there's going to be an event called the rapture where all living believers are going to be resurrected in place. That would be a good way to go, wouldn't it, Stephanie? You just get your resurrection body in place and you meet the Lord uh, in the air before the tribulation period begins on earth. So we might be in that generation. I don't think we can be very far from that generation, but short of that, Everybody wonders what's going to happen to me when, not if I die. And as you know, thousands of religious teachers and philosophers over the centuries have responded to that question, and they've got answers all over the map. But fortunately, there's one truly authoritative and truly reliable source for the correct answer to this, and of course that person is our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to see what Jesus teaches about life and death and life after death. And we're going to see how he literally overpowered death in a little village just outside of Jerusalem about a month before his own death and resurrection. So that's what we're going to do this morning, Lord willing. But let's uh, pray for our teachability to God's word, even as we pray for our troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And there are some military folks we know and love, and those are the three peace officers who were uh, killed a month ago to this day in in Baton Rouge. So when we pray for uh, our peace officers, we're very serious about that. Uh, so um, tell you what, Ken, if you would lead us in opening prayer, would you please? Yeah, we're going to look at the climactic miracle that's recorded in the Gospel of John leading up to the resurrection of Christ himself. And thinking about miracles in the modern 21st century context, you know, the medical business has gotten very complicated. And here we have a hospital administrator coming to the bedside of a TBFer. And I won't tell you who it is, but her initials are Blanche Britton. No, it could be anybody. could be anyone. But he says to the patient, please don't pray for healing. If it works, your insurance won't know who to reimburse, and it messes up our accounting system. So miracles can cause uh, unanticipated problems. Yeah, Jesus' best friend, John the Apostle, goes out of his way to select seven specific miracles Jesus did. He did hundreds. Thirty-five specific ones are recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John just tells you about seven, and he tells you at the end of the book, Many other signs Jesus also performed that are not written in this book. I'm not telling you everything I know. 
But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in His name. And when you look at that list of miracles, back in June we started with the first one, the water and the wine, and we moved up. And as you notice, John's not making this stuff up at all happened, but he's uh, purposely ordering these in order of a spectacular nature. I mean, water and wine is an amazing thing. It's supernatural. You can't do it. But raising a dead man, a man who's been dead, biologically dead for four days, uh, you can't reproduce that in the laboratory, right? Now, you might think, since this is a series called The Seven Sign Miracles of the Gospel of John, right? Ryan, so that's the title. And since we're talking about the seventh miracle today, you'd think this would be the end of the series, right? Oh, no, Bible breath. It's not the end of the series. Because even though we're looking at the seven signs John recorded, uh, just because it's probably one of my favorite miracles. I just love this miracle the Lord does. Not in the body of the book where the seven signs are, but at the last chapter in the epilogue, we're going to see uh, the resurrected Jesus uh, teaching supernatural fishing techniques. So if you're a fisherman or a wannabe fisherman, this will be a good miracle for you. So we'll look at that, Lord willing, and weather permitting, here in Oklahoma next Sunday. And then, Lord willing, in two weeks, we're going to uh, survey the life of Solomon. We're going to look at the wisest man who ever lived who did some really stupid things. And he did. And so I think we can learn some cool lessons from that. That will be in First Kings if you want to read ahead. But today let's look at the seventh sign miracle. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead catalyzed both saving faith in some unbelievable unbelief in others. And it marks the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. We're going to see the death of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, and then the aftermath of that. So let's look at the uh, death of Lazarus. And that really begins in 1040, chapter 10, verse 40. But just for a little context, let's look at chapter 10, verse 22. We're very close to the crucifixion when we read the events of chapter 11. And we can see how we lead up to this or run up to this this way. Chapter 10. Verse 22, we have a section of John that at this time, the Feast of the Dedication, today they call it Hanukkah, took place in Jerusalem. That would have been in December. Okay, Robbie, so in chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus is in Jerusalem in December of 32 A.D. Now, as you go forward, let's uh, jump forward to uh, verse 26 and see some of what Jesus said in Jerusalem in December before his crucifixion in the next April. He says to the scoffers in the streets, you do not believe that I'm the Christ because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give everlasting life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If this is you and you're a believer, Jesus says you're in his hand. So you're not going to perish. Verse 28. Uh, verse 29, my father, God the Father, Jesus God the Son, who has given them to me is greater than all who would want to try to snatch clay ward out of Jesus' hand. And if you're in Jesus' hand, nobody can get you out of his hand anyway. And no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So we're told that you, Debbie, are in Jesus' hand and you're in the Father's hand. You might say, where's the Holy Spirit? It's not mentioned here. He is always the agent of regeneration, but we're told in 
Ephesians twice that uh, we are sealed in our salvation by God the Holy Spirit. So always think of Jesus holding Tommy, or, or more importantly, Brad, and the Father holding on to that, and then the Holy Spirit supergluing that whole situation there. So he's claiming, Jesus is claiming here to be the issue and the issuer of eternal life. And he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one, not the same person, but one and the same in character. Whatever God the Father is in his essence with all of his divine attributes, Jesus is claiming to be. So what would any good Jewish uh, person in the first century do to somebody who's just claimed to be God? They're going to stone him. Because under the law, that's blasphemy. Unless you actually have God in the flesh in front of you. So verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again. Back in chapter 8, they almost stoned him in Jerusalem to stone him. Now jump forward to verse 39. Therefore they, the Jewish leadership, was religious leadership, was seeking to seize him and have him killed, but he eluded their grasp. Now we're going to start thinking about the raising of Lazarus. Look at verse 40. And he, that's Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan River, outside of Israel proper, to the place where John the Baptist was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Now this is a simple map of uh, the Jerusalem region, and you'll see that uh, the events we just read about taking place in Jerusalem, but and, and the events of the raising of Lazarus will take place just two miles out of Jerusalem. But Jesus goes across the river over here just to avoid being apprehended by the bad guys until the proper time when he submits to that. Okay, uh, Verse 41, many came to him and were saying, while John the Baptist performed no miracles, no sign miracles like Jesus performs seven that are recorded in this gospel, Yet everything John the Baptist said about the man is true, and many, that is a good many, not two or three, but maybe two or three hundred, believed in him there. Okay? Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, while all this is happening, the bad guys are at fever pitch against Jesus. It's dangerous for him to get anywhere near Jerusalem, which is why he's gone across the river temporarily. Now, very near Jerusalem, a certain man who happened to be very good friends with Jesus was sick. Lazarus of Bethany. That's a different Bethany than Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's the one just outside of Jerusalem, as the context will make clear. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word by friend or messenger. Uh, they didn't tweet it, I don't think. Okay? No tweeting back then. It's hard to get tower power in, in, you know, in that part of the world. Uh, so the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you phileo, who you are, have a specially, special fondness, a special connection with, is sick. So they're sending out the SOS there. So that's the setting. Now let's look at verses 4 through 16. Jesus is going to purposely delay coming to Bethany. He could have left sooner. But he wants uh, Lazarus to be dead and dead for several days so there can be no doubt that when he ra raises him from the dead, Jesus has the power to raise even the dead, not just someone who was very sick. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this report through the messenger, when the messenger got to him, uh, he said, 
This sickness is not to end in death, an irreversible death and ultimately like a fire kind of death. But this has been permitted for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. And this is uh, the seventh climactic sign John remembers and records. Now Jesus phileoed Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now it's interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Mary and Martha. But they don't say anything about Lazarus, their brother. Uh, this is the first time they're mentioned in the Gospel of John. But they're really good friends of the Lord Jesus. And he's in and out of Jerusalem a lot. He probably stayed at their home, uh, at least some of the times he visited with them. And even if he didn't stay in their home, he was always on the slopes of Gethsemane, very close to Bethany, just across the hill there. So this is a specially close connection uh, between these folks. Verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed beyond the Jordan two days longer in the place where he already had been doing his ministry there. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea, the region where Jerusalem and Bethany are located, meaning let's go back to Bethany and and see about Lazarus. Let's go back there again. Now, what's the problem with that? What happened the last time he was in Jerusalem? They tried to stone him, and now they're trying to seize him, which is why he's gone across the river. So this is, uh, you know, kind of... uh, a uh, dangerous situation, and the disciples are not at all happy about going back, okay? They want to stay as far away from Jerusalem as possible. They'd, like, they'd be much happier if he said, let's go back, let's get further away from Jerusalem, okay? But that's not the, what the plan is. Okay, look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were just seeking to stone you in Judea, in Jerusalem. And we're going to go back there? I mean, it's like going back to Cholula, you know, the first time we went to Pueblo, they were throwing rocks at the team in Cholula. Uh, and uh, so they came up with plan B for that team. But anyway, Jesus answered and said, kind of cryptically, are there not 12 hours in the day in general? He's not trying to be specific. If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now watch this, James. Jesus doesn't put all his cookies on the bottom shelf. Now, James is a very good Bible teacher, and I'm trying to learn to be one, and I'm very well aware I can't put all of my cookies on the top shelf because not everybody's interested in the minute details of uh, Ezekiel 38, you know? So I purposely try to stratify my cookies. But think of teaching time in here and youth group uh, with the teenagers as kind of spiritual aerobics, and we put some of our cookies where... The first-time visitor who's just kind of Christianity, is that one of the major religions? Yeah. You can kind of start getting some insight, and this is what we think is the Word of God, and it's about Jesus, stuff like that. But we try very hard to try to stratify the cookies. But the idea that you can't have valid ministry with millennials unless you take it down to the second-grade level is, frankly, an insult to second-grade millennials because some of them are advanced students. You know, But that's what we're being told. We're being told we're religious entrepreneurs. We've got to use business uh, tactics, and we've got to lower it down to the second grade level. And I ain't going to do that, okay? If you want to get in shape and you can't bench press but 20 pounds, we'll start you at 20. In fact, we'll start you at 18, okay? Because we want you to feel good about yourself and not get too sore the first week. But we want to, if you're a grown man, you ought to be able to bench press more than 20 pounds. And we're not going to set, you know, settle for that. So I've often said, if the, the Lord would only allow you to have second grade level temptations and second grade level doubts, that's when they'll start teaching the second grade level. Okay? 
And uh, so, that's what that is. But what he's saying is, it's okay for us to go back, because as long as I'm in the center of God's will, my death will not happen prematurely. Now, in the center of God's will is the crucifixion. We're told that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. In the mind and plan of God. All three persons, okay? But that's what he's saying there. So he could have said it simpler, but he goes out of his way to force people to use their powers of abstract thinking, okay? And that's just part of the way it is. You've got to think deeply to understand deep truth. And while the main things in the Bible are plain things and they get repeated a lot, sin's bad, hell's hot, Jesus paid for your sins, you can be saved by faith in him. You don't have to be a theologian to get that, okay? You can be a little child. But when you oversimplify really important stuff, you distort it, and that isn't James's job, and that's not my job, and so we're, we don't do that. So uh, that's that. Boy, he can preach on that for five minutes? Unbelievable. Yeah, I can. I just did it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, verse 11. Then he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for the death of a believer. It talks about the body, not the soul. The soul doesn't sleep. But I go, so I may awaken him out of sleep. Now, these, these guys don't listen that closely most of the time, Steve, but this time they're, they're going to exegete this very literally. Okay? The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll wake up. He'll recover. We don't have to go and put ourselves in harm's way to wake him up. Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, his physical, biological death, but the dum-dums thought he was speaking of literal sleep. You know, I like to say this because it sounds controversial, but it's really not. Uh, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says the way it says it. And when in that context he says Jesus is asleep, he means he's dead, but he's a believer. So he's okay no matter what happens. And he's a special case. We're going to resuscitate him shortly. That's one of the big things about getting married. Stephanie and Russell are now engaged. They're going to get married here? Awesome. Uh, they, they were going to get married at uh, Westminster Abbey, but it was full that, that weekend, right? So, But uh, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but one of the things about getting married is you're going to have to figure out not what he says, but what he means by what he says. I know you already are pretty good at that, but 43 years later, I've gotten where I've learned a, a few tricks I didn't know 43 years ago about what she's talking about some of the time. And I'm not perfect at that. But yeah, so watch what happens here. So they thought he was talking about sleep and they don't want to go to Jerusalem and I'll get hurt or arrested or killed for that. Uh, so Jesus has to just kind of lower the boom. Verse 14. So Jesus then said to them, Lazarus is dead. Okay, guys. That's it. Bottom line. And I'm glad, not that he's dead. I'm glad for your sake because this is going to set up the situation that you're going to have to remember and that believers everywhere need to remember. Jesus literally has the power of life and death. I was glad I wasn't there when he died, so that you may believe. He's telling believers to believe. These guys are already believers, Mike. They already believe Jesus the Christ. But when uh, we go through our Christian life, we develop a deeper faith over time, and quite often it involves time and reflection when something really hard happens. And it may take years and you don't totally ever get over some of the losses and some of the scars we receive on this earth, which is why I'm so glad heaven's real. Heaven is for real, okay? And there are some losses and, and scars you suffer here that can't be fixed this side of heaven. It just ain't going to happen. 
but he said, I'm glad because I'm going to uh, be able to teach you something you need to know through this. So let's go to him. Verse 16. Uh, Therefore, Thomas, who's called Didymus, and that's the word for twin. This is the guy I usually call Doubting Thomas, but actually he's not all bad. Uh, but here he says something that's variously interpreted. And watch this. Thomas, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, basically, let me get paraphrase. He said, get up, let's go, he's going anyway, and we're all going to get killed. That's what he means. Okay? Let's go, we may die with him. Now, uh, some people say, well, you know, he's, he's totally committed, and so Jesus says go and go, but he's also a, you know, an honest arbiter of the truth. Uh, I think he's being sarcastic. I think he's still hoping to talk Jesus out of it indirectly by saying, okay, we'll go, but we're all going to get killed. Oh, 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 that's right. We might all get killed. We won't go. I think that's the kind of re- response Thomas is hoping for. That's my opinion. You can ask Thomas in heaven about that. And it'll be interesting to see exactly his nuance. But I think that's what's going on there. Boom. Now, watch this. When Jesus says uh, Lazarus has fallen asleep, there are some groups, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other groups that teach at physical death, our soul goes to sleep. And then at the end times, when God resurrects people or deals with the individual agents, then he kind of wakes us up uh, because the Scripture talks about death as being sleep. But that's not what it's talking about. Uh, as Dr. Tom Constable points out, He says, Jesus wasn't teaching the doctrine of soul sleep here. That's clear from Luke 16. Now, there's a story told, an event told in Luke 16, where Jesus talks about Lazarus the beggar and the rich man, who both die and they're in different positions in heaven, and they have some interaction there. So it's obvious at their death, their souls aren't sleeping, they're conscious in the afterlife, okay? Now, a lot of people have noted there's there's some interesting parallels between that incident in Luke 16 and this incident, this event of Jesus raising Lazarus, same name, in John 11. Uh, the vast majority of scholars don't think they're the same thing, but at least one scholar I know of locally does think they're the same thing, same event, same person. And it's possible, it's not impossible. There are some parallels. But let's just say that when Jesus says He's asleep. He doesn't mean his soul's asleep waiting for the resurrection. It means his body is dead. Okay, That's what that means. So don't read the doctrine of soul sleep into that euphemism for death. Look at verse 17. Uh, watch this. This is so incredible. You see, the ministry of Jesus to hurting people. Jesus supports the faith and the grief of Mary and Martha. I don't care how spiritual you are, Robbie. You're a pretty spiritual guy. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. Am I right? When Jesus got cut, did he bleed, Carla? Yeah. No matter how spiritual, no matter how much faith you got, Carol, you get cut, you're going to bleed. When you suffer a significant loss, you're going to grieve. I don't care how spiritual you are. Okay? Now, it, I've, got, I've gotten better. I've gotten stronger. Because every year, when OSU would lose to OU in football, I would go, you know, in the morning for like six weeks. And now it only lasts for about six days. So I'm, I know I'm getting stronger. But it doesn't matter how spiritual you are. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. If you suffer a loss, you're going to grieve. These ladies are grieving. And the Lord knows he's about to change their grief into total ecstatic joy. Very unique situation, but he actually did it. And yet he's sensitive to where they are. And I think that often gets missed when... Uh, Let's go to that, yeah. 
when we read this passage. So let's read that passage from this perspective. Look at verse 17. So when Jesus came, when they arrived in Bethany, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, the Lord raises the uh, son of the widow of Nain in his ministry, and he raises the daughter of Jairus in his ministry. But those resuscitations were shortly after the physical death happened. Those were still miracles. I'm not minimizing them. But this is somebody who's been dead for four days. This is a whole different situation. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now, Steve, you're a good Bible reader. Why is John reminding you Bethany's close to Jerusalem? Why is that, why is that important? It's very dangerous, yeah. And many of the Jews had come from Jerusalem, the, the big shots, the VIPs, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. That was considered to be normal standard operating procedure. That was customary to, to visit those, and we still do that today, and we should. It's very necessary and important. But notice, uh, Lazarus isn't a beggar. These ladies are not the sisters of beggars. These people are very close to the power base. They have friends in the power base, Mary and Martha. This, these are VIPs themselves. So uh, I think that's important to know. We're getting a lot of the big shots coming to console their friends, Mary and Martha. So these people would have been moving in the highest religious and social circles of the day. Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming toward their house in the tomb, doesn't wait for him to come to the house. She goes out. Uh, to meet him outside. She's an action kind of person. Mary, a little slower, more of a plotter, a thinker. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, if you'd had your phone on when you're at the Simmons Center, you would have known that I wanted you to do X. That's kind of what works today. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's your fault. Okay? We sent you a messenger. What? What's the problem? You know? Uh, She's being honest. When people are, you know, if I can serve people by letting them get all their pain out, I've, I, James and I will do that for you. you know, this, and sometimes people do that, you know. And you find out, when people go through grief, you know, it's denial, bargaining, anger. Uh, people get mad at their doctor. Technically, it's not her fault, you know, that your uh, daughter is ill. They get mad at God. They get mad at the sick person. They get mad at those trying to minister to them. So most of us who've been in ministry or service like that, we know that's kind of the first reaction, so we don't take it personally. Um, I always bring Kleenex, so when I go to the car, I can kind of wipe my tears. Now, you just know that people are hurting, and that's just helping them to actually get that out. If you hold on to it, then you get depressed and get stuck, but get it out. So she just says, Lord, you know, it's your fault. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And even now I know that you're the Messiah. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, I used to think that meant she was thinking, hint, hint, go ahead and raise him from the dead. I'm not sure that's true. I think she's still saying, even though you blew it this time, I still believe in you, kind of thing. I'll show you why. I don't think she's assuming he's going to raise her brother right then, because of something else she's going to say later. But Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And all good Jews knew they were living in the present age, waiting for the glorious appearing of the Messiah, and then... There would be a resurrection of all the people who had believed in the Messiah and then the age to come, the millennium. So she thinks he's talking about theology. Hey, in the end times, your brother will be, you'll see him. You know, you'll be resurrected. He'll be resurrected. You'll see him. And Martha says, I know that. I know that. I've been to synagogue school. I go every Saturday. I know he'll rise again in the last day. 
And then Jesus says, hey, I'm talking about something bigger than just that. And that's big. The 1028, right on time. It comes every week. 1028, you can set your clock by it. No, no it doesn't always come. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the basis for resurrection life. That's what that means. I am the resurrection and the life. That's zoe, not bios. That's not biological life. That's spiritual life. I am the basis of resurrection life. He who believes me in me will live even if he dies. What does Paul say about the death of a believer in 2 Corinthians? For the believer, death is absent. To be absent from the body, that is your soul, your consciousness, Sean, it goes from your body to be at the Lord. We bury the body. It looks like it's asleep, but it's not asleep. It's the, the consciousness is left. That's what physical death ultimately is. And, of course, all the physical medical things stop working, too. Uh, watch this. I am the resurrection and the life. He, the one, he or she, who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. The second death, the lake of fire is the ultimate death, and we're not going to be part of that. And then she said, he says, do you believe this? I mean, come on, just think about it. You believe this, so apply it to the situation. And she says, and this is such a beautiful statement, yes, Lord, I have believed. You're the Christ. You're the promised Messiah. You're the Lamb of God. You're ultimately going to end history on God's terms also as the Lion of God. You're the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. Man, that's an awesome statement, the whole thing. Almost every funeral I do, with very few exceptions, I'll read that passage at some point. It's just too good not to. This is Jesus saying, I'm the basis of resurrection life. Everybody wonders, what's going to happen to me, not if, but when I die? Well, if your faith is in Jesus, this is what's going to happen to you. You're never really going to die, right? When she had said this, she went away and called Mary. What's Mary doing? She's grieving in the house. Very appropriate. That's her personality. She didn't come out, rush out, and welcome Jesus. Uh, of course, Martha kind of had an agenda. She, he, she wanted to kind of put a little guilt on Jesus. If you'd been here, this wouldn't happen kind of thing. But uh, she goes to get her sister Mary, saying secretly, whispering, when all the professional mourners are around, the teacher's here calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard that, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. I mean, Martha had come out and met him just outside the city limits, uh, but was still in the place where Martha had met him outside the house. Then the Jews, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, remember Martha's visit, whispering that Jesus is there, that's the reason she's getting up, uh, supposed that Mary was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, uh, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying, does this sound familiar? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The, the one good thing about people getting mad at God in a big crisis is at least they take him relevant. They see he's relevant. They realize he could have prevented this. And that is always true. That is always true. But God's got purposes beyond our ability to connect all the dots. It's like looking at the back of the tapestry. It doesn't look very good, but the front is beautiful. So I think I don't think they coordinated, hey, when, when he gets here, I'll run out and I'll lay it on him. And then after you get, get him, uh, you can lay it on him. I don't think that was coordinated. I think that's just kind of the expression of their heart. And it's okay. It's okay. According to the book of Job, according to the book of Habakkuk, uh, it's okay to ask God questions from a faith perspective when what's happening doesn't seem to line up with your faith perspective. I mean... Uh, you know, it takes some time to figure some things out and, and deal with these things. Pretending like, uh, you know, 
I've got enough faith, uh, you can cut me, I won't bleed, you can take anything from me, I won't grieve, isn't real life. Jesus doesn't work like that. In fact, we're going to see Jesus entering into their grief in a minute. But he's definitely uh, meeting them where they are. He's supporting not just their faith, but their grief, because they're important to him. Okay. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, what does that mean? Now, that word in the Greek, deeply moved, means to be angry, but here it can only be pure righteous indignation as Jesus looks at this whole situation. Some people say he's angry at some of these fakier friends who are crying even though they're not really hurting that much and kind of putting on a show. That's possible. But I think it's more profound than that. I think Jesus is looking at the misery that death inflicts on humanity uh, when we die, and the misery loved ones who survive have to feel, and the pain they go through. Uh, what you don't see Jesus doing is, grow up! He's going to be okay! His spirit's already in paradise! You're going to see him in the resurrection! Grow up! Stop acting like you're sad! There's nothing to be sad about. That's not the way human beings are wired. That's not the way we've been wired. That's why Paul in First Thessalonians says, uh, as believers... We don't have to grieve like those with no hope. But he doesn't say we don't have to grieve. These are believers looking at the Savior, and Jesus is supporting not just their faith, but their grief. And he doesn't say, get over it, grow up. Uh, he deals with them where they are. Uh, Ed Bloom in the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, this is Jesus' reaction to death and sin. And he says, physical death is the divine object lesson of what sin does to us in the spiritual realm. It kills us spiritually. As physical death ends life, physical life, and separates people, so spiritual death is the separation of people from God and the loss of life, which is in God. Now look at verse 34 and 35. Uh, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Uh, you know, when I grew up in, in uh, Southern Baptist Church in Florida and Birmingham, Alabama, um, they would have ask us in the first day of Sunday school as, as you get promoted, what's your favorite Bible verse, and, and recite it. And a lot of people would always say Jesus wept because that was an easy one to remember, right? John, uh, John, my favorite verse, John ten thirty five, Jesus wept. Uh, the word for wept here means to shed tears. Now, some of the earlier uh, statements here that uh, maybe translated crying or weeping means to wail and to weep. This is Jesus shedding tears. It's interesting because one of the biggest prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. And it talks about him being a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So he enters into their grief. He actually, actually sheds tears over their grief. And he realizes he's just a month outside of his own torture and mutilation at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish authorities. Uh, this is an expression of sorrow. Uh, and I think he's grieving over the consequences of sin and the damage of sin. Dr. Constable says uh, he's not crying for the loss of his friend Lazarus since Jesus knows he's about to restore him to life. Nor was he just weeping compassionately with Mary and Martha because he's about to turn their grief into rejoicing. Uh, I do think there's true empathy here. You know, we use the word sympathy and empathy as synonyms, but they're not. Sympathy is when you feel badly for somebody. 
Okay? Empathy is when you feel badly with somebody. You actually emotionally have an overlap with them. Uh, that's something Christians should know very intimately because we're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus is weeping here. Uh, Jesus Christ three times in the Gospels. And uh, I, th- I think I mentioned, it's been a long time since I remember crying. Uh, I remember two years ago I cried. Uh, um, and a, not very often. I cried when we were taking Debbie to the doctor on our, uh, what was it, 19th wedding anniversary because they thought she had a brain tumor. I was crying, driving. She was wondering why I was crying. Um, but uh, this is our wedding anniversary. I want to be at Six Flags, not the hospital, you know. Uh, among other things. But, yeah, uh, where are the three times Jesus cries in the Gospels? Number one, here in John 11:35, everybody's shortest Bible verse. Uh, over the city of Jerusalem, as he's entering in Jerusalem for the last time, and not because it's dangerous, but because he knows that they've rejected and killed the prophets and they're about to reject and kill their prophet, priest, and king. He's sorry for them. And then in Gethsemane, now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't mention him crying in Gethsemane, but Hebrews 5, 7 does. Interesting. Now watch this. Look at verse 34 and 35. Uh, where have you laid him? Come and see. Jesus wept. Now watch, Steve. Same person, same event, same reaction, two different interpretations. So when the Jews were saying, saw that, they were saying, wow, he must have really loved Lazarus. He must have really thought highly of Lazarus. So that's a positive reaction. Here's the same event, same person being reacted to in a different way. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? If he'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. They're still blaming him for the death, you know, which technically is not his fault. So it's interesting. You can, uh, you've probably done something very innocently and you've had one person commend you for it, another person condemn you for it. It's, it's bizarre when it happens, but it can happen. Okay, that's the death of Lazarus. He knew about it, but didn't fix it. But he did console the family, and not just confronting them to stop crying, but he actually entered into their grief. Now let's look at the raising of Lazarus, verses 38 through 44. Uh, the Lord performs this miracle as a major signpost validating his claims. Okay, Clay, nobody else can do stuff like this. Look at verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, so he's still very emotionally, uh, with a great empathy involved in this whole situation, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Sounds familiar, kind of like the cave uh, where Jesus would be buried. Uh, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, that's an interesting way to refer to her, <laughs> said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench. He's been dead for four days. See, that's why I'm saying I'm not sure when she says, uh, even now I know whatever you want to do, you can do, including hopefully raise my brother. I don't think she's thinking that category anymore. Because if she was, she would say, oh, okay, now it's going to come. Okay, now you're going to do what I wanted you to do. She's saying, you can't do that. You know, it's just not a good idea. Jesus said to her, did I not say that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and in a prayer of thanksgiving, aware, not praying to the people at hand, but aware of the people you're praying with. It's okay in prayer meeting to pray in a way that people you're praying with can understand. There's a fine line between praying as a 
performance. Everybody can tell you how great your prayer was or be impressed with your prayer. But you also have to be in mind with the people you're praying around and with. When I pray with uh, the older brother and sister, uh, right now you can pray any way you want to in front of Eloise and Violet. It doesn't matter. Okay, they're not listening anyway. Uh, but when I'm praying with my little grandkids, I'm going to pray at a different level so just so I can follow it so they can hopefully join in prayer with me. So this is a good example of that kind of thing. He prays out loud with a crowd of people around. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a very honest, sincere connection with the Father. But he's saying it in a way that people can follow it. Uh, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around here, I'm saying it so that you may, so that they may believe that you sent me. This is the ultimate uh, business card that I'm the Messiah. I've got the power over life and death. Uh, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. That must have been a beautiful sight, seeing this guy hop out of the tomb wrapped up like a mummy. Uh, but uh, that's what happened. As always in the Bible, you have a very unelaborated statement of this happened. We have no idea how something like that can happen, but it happened. We saw it with our own eyes. It really happened in time space. If you got in a time machine and went back there, that's what you'd see. Okay, the death, the raising, now the aftermath of the uh, resuscitation of Lazarus. Now, by the way, this is not resurrection. Okay, When Jesus dies, three days later on Easter, he's resurrected. What does that mean? He's never going to die again. And he's in his old body. All the elements were put together, but supernaturally transformed. So he's got an eternal, what's called a resurrection body. Lazarus is resuscitated supernaturally, but he would die again. He's not resurrected. Once you're resurrected, that's the reunion of your soul with the elements of your body, supernaturally transformed. And at that point, you're not going to die anymore under any circumstances, right? Uh, yeah, look at uh, the aftermath here. Uh, we're going to see a good many people receive Jesus in response to this miracle, Stephanie, as you'd expect. Uh, the big shots still renounce him. In fact, they're going to use this against him. Can you believe that? And uh, they categorically reject him. Look at that. Look at verse uh, 45. Well, Therefore, in the aftermath of this undeniable sign miracle that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior, Two miles out of Jerusalem, all the big shots saw it or know about it. Many, a good many of the Jewish folks, average folks, who had come to Mary and saw what he had done, Jesus, believed in him. He must be the Messiah. He's got the power of life and death. But some of them went to the Pharisees, went to the big shots, who were already looking for reasons and looking for opportunities to take him out, and told them the things which Jesus had done. Boom. You're not going to believe this, but hey boss, you got to do something about this Jesus guy. He's raising dead people now. Okay? I mean, good night. What are we going to do? This is a, this is a bureaucratic nightmare. Now what we're going to see here in the next couple of verses is what always happens when the status quo, uh, is, uh, is, uh, being rejected. Okay? Uh, the, the folk, corrupt leaders always want to keep the status quo because it's always great for them. And if anything gets in the way, including Jesus, let's just run him over and get rid of him. Therefore, in reaction to the raising of Lazarus, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. This is an emergency meeting, executive session. And they're saying, what are we doing? 
you know, we've renounced him, we've taught, taught against him, we've confronted him. It's, it's not working. He's doing, he's bigger and better. This man is performing many signs. In fact, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. We'll be out of business. Not everybody's going to believe, but that's the way they see it. It's honest recording of what they said. And the Romans who occupy the region will come and take away our place and our nation. They're just going to clobber our nation if Jesus uh, has an independent nation state and he runs it. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest from 18 to 36 A.D., we know that from history, uh, said, you guys are, are fools. You know nothing. Here's what we got to do. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you, for all y'all, for all of us, that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now watch this. This is called double entendre. He's saying, look, let's use him as a patsy. The Romans are upset at all of the chain jerking that the Jews have been doing against Roman authority. Let's set Jesus up as the ringleader of all the opposition against the Romans. We'll kill him. We'll send out a report, send it to Rome, and they'll push back on the pressure. They'll think they're okay. Okay? And we're going to say he's the problem. The rest of us are loyal Roman citizens. That's what he means by that. But a literal reading of those words can mean something totally different, exactly what God would want the high priest to say and to believe. John says, verse 51, Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. He ultimately said this the way he said it, so it could have two meanings. But being high priest that year, he, in effect, he spoke better than he knew. He was prophesying that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He's seeing Jesus as a scapegoat, as a patsy that they can hold up to the Romans as, hey, we're supporting Roman rule because we killed Jesus, when in fact, Jesus goes to the cross, not as a patsy, but as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Everything that could keep you out of heaven, Jesus died for on the cross, which is why you don't have to do any works, because he's done the work of salvation. So John's just saying, ironically, in the providence of God, what this guy means for evil, God in effect meant for good to have the high priest say that, if only he had really understood what he meant. Uh, and not for the nation only. Jesus wouldn't just die for the nation only, but ultimately for the whole world. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, also the Savior of the world. Verse 53, so from that day on, they're getting into the final plan. He's got to go. Jesus has got to be killed as soon as possible, like right now. Basically, the first time we can get our hands on it. That's it. Now look at verse 54. Meanwhile, in light of that, which is going on in secret, but Jesus knows about it, we have to have a temporary withdrawal. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews in and around Jerusalem until the triumphal entry in the last week, about a month or two away, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness in a place called Ephraim, about 15 miles north near the Judean wilderness, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now, probably you pay, there's probably a, a, a time gap between 54 and 55. Now, in that status quo, of hostility against Jesus. The Passover of the Jews was near. It would have been late March, early April. And many went up to Jerusalem from the whole country uh, before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus. The average people were wondering, he always comes to the Passover. wonder if he's going to come this year. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he'll not come at all because of the threats against him? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that person was reported to them so they might arrest him. Okay, So their plan is, the, as soon as possible, but certainly during the run-up to Passover, 
as soon as Jesus gets anywhere in Jerusalem, we'll arrest him and have him killed. But that's not what happens. What happens? As Jesus comes into town, what happens right before the Passover? Triumphal entry. we got thousands of people saying, Hosanna, this is the Messiah. So they can't arrest him. Whoops, we got to go to plan B. So what, is it, what, is it, what ends up being plan B? Because Jesus ends up teaching publicly in the temple courtyard that whole week leading up to Passover. There's just too many witnesses. There's just too much popular, albeit superficial support at this point. So what do they do? They're coming up, trying to figure out something, and then somebody comes to them and says, if you give me 30 pieces of silver, I'll make this happen for you. Remember? Judas, one of the disciples, said, hey, he spends the night on Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, in around Gethsemane. Uh, I'll point him out. I'll finger him for you. and You can take him down. So that's what ends up happening. So they have plan A. They end up with plan B. But it's all ultimately permitted by God. Take this to heart and we'll close. Uh, I want you to notice that spiritually hardened people, like the bad guys in this piece, will explain away any and all evidence for Jesus. And that's still true today. Okay, Spiritually open people can as the Spirit works within us, move from biblical evidence to believe. And that's why we believe and share the gospel and live it so that people of peace can hear and believe. So next time you hear a skeptic tell you today, if Jesus would just do a few miracles in front of me, I would believe. That's not true. That's not true. They may think it's true, but they'll just use it against him, right? And ultimately, the Jewish theological leaders said Jesus did miracles by the power of Satan. That's how they explained it away, you know, in a larger context. Uh, let me uh, go back to where I started this morning. Every human being wonders, what's going to happen to me when I die? Not if I die, and not everybody else so much, but me, for sure. Or me and my loved ones, for sure. Well, you know what? Um, the fact that we all die, the fact that we've got a 100% mortality rate, is bad news but it's prerequisite for the good news. In a culture that kind of denies sin and pushes death out of its consciousness, the gospel doesn't make sense. In a real rational world where we realize at our worst we break our own standards, much less God's, and we're all going to die at some point, the gospel makes a lot of sense. Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. Right? And Christ died for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected from the dead. So he's obviously the issue and the issuer of eternal life. Now, a lot of times at this point, uh, people will say, with every head bowed and every eye closed. But I'm going to say, with every eye looking at the screen. Every eye looking at the screen. Every eye looking at the screen. All over the building, please. Let me just end like this. All human beings think about their own mortality. Uh, all human beings are forced to deal with the death of people we love around us. But when we as Christians deal with the blackness of death, we can rest in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray to you today as our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, our sustainer, and the consummator of history. Uh, we believe that you're the Lamb of God. We believe that you paid for our sins on the cross and you rose again. And you're the giver of eternal life to all, to all who will believe in you. Uh, I want to pray your Holy Spirit would open eyes to see and believe that.
anyone's here this morning has not believed and trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, for the rest of us, help us to realize it only makes sense for us to live for the one who died for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.